Let me encourage you not to uh, turn over the sheet, but to keep that uh, passage from the Bible open. Uh, And as you do that, I'm going to pray for us that God would help us uh, to understand the Bible. Almighty God, we thank you that you are truly there and that you are not silent. And so we pray that you would help us to understand more of the Lord Jesus through the Bible this evening. For his name's sake. Amen. Well, although my uh, 40th birthday is imminent, I am, I think, still in middle-age denial. And so for a few more days at least, friends are humouring my delusional insistence that I am a man who is still in his 30s. Of course, some people feel it is their mission in life to encourage me to live in the real world. So not long ago, a colleague, not a million miles from here, sent me an encouraging card with the wording, you know, you're quite good fun for an old person which I suppose is better than those infuriating musical cards that that play a tune when you open them. Not only is the music piercingly terrible, but sometimes you just can't shut them up once you open them. Uh, I remember a friend of mine recounting the story of lying in bed one night and, and suddenly becoming aware of the distant and relentless playing of Happy Birthday. All attempts to block out the auditory torture failed, And so, raised from his futile attempts to slumber, he searched the house for the offending card. Eventually, in the early hours of the morning, he found the card buried and ever joyful amidst the rubbish of the outside bin. (laughs) When you come to consider the person and claims of Jesus Christ, it is interesting how seemingly impossible it is to keep him quiet. And for good or ill, you just can't shut him up. His birth divides the Western calendar, and like it or not, his teaching and ideas have profoundly shaped the world in which we live. So culturally, the teachings of Jesus Christ have significantly influenced social reform, our political and judicial system, healthcare provision, and even the development of modern science. And that's before you even consider the impact of Jesus Christ on the world of art and, and literature and music. So only yesterday in the Times, uh, the TV guide has on the front a cross. There's a double-page article in the middle of the Times from uh, Geza Vermes, who's the professor of Jewish studies at Oxford University, looking at the whole historicity of Jesus Christ. And interestingly, he claims that the best source for reconstructing the portrait of the historical Jesus is the New Testament. Of course, Christ's influence isn't confined to Western culture. Indeed, although the church seems to be in terminal decline here, Christ continues to impact the lives of millions of people throughout the world. From Siberia to Sudan, from New Zealand to Nebraska. Of course, some people would argue with some justification that the influence of Christianity has not always been benign, never mind beneficial. There are certainly many things that have been done and indeed are being done in the name of Jesus Christ that are shameful and deplorable. Nevertheless, why does the influence of Jesus Christ remain so uniquely persistent? Is that not curious? Intriguing? Troubling? that a man who was born 2,000 years ago should remain so persistently influential? See, people are still interested in the historical Jesus. So Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code has sold over 40 million copies worldwide, 
a figure that will doubtless rise exponentially with the imminent release of the film. People are still interested in Jesus as a good person and a great teacher. So even the award-winning novelist Philip Pullman can describe Jesus as a moral genius. And of course, Pullman makes no secret of his utter disdain for Christianity. People are still, in some vague way, interested in Jesus as an historical person, as a good man, a spiritual guide even. Which is presumably why, even in our increasingly secular society, even 70% of the UK population describe themselves in the last census as Christians. Of course, even to talk about our society as secular is to unwittingly acknowledge the influence of Jesus Christ. Professor John Gray of the LSE puts it, when thinking about the idea that we live in a post-religious era, it is worth remembering that the secular realm is a Christian invention. Or as he puts it elsewhere, humanism is a secular religion thrown together from the decaying scraps of Christian myth. See, try as you may, you cannot get away from the influence of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, if you actually read the historical documents that were written closest to the events of Jesus' life, one of which we have an extract of in front of us this evening, if you actually read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and teaching, you may be surprised to read how uncompromising Jesus' claims and commands are. Throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus insists that people take him seriously and that some sort of vague, unexamined belief in him is wholly inadequate. Now, you read the gospel accounts and Jesus is insistent that you need to hold to, to be utterly committed to his teaching so that you actually do what he says. Why? Well, because as we will see, he claims alone to offer freedom and life. Now, you read John's gospel and it's clear that people expressed some sort of vague belief in Jesus in the first century, just as they do today. So, if you you look down to verse 31 of this extract, we read of those who believed in Jesus in some sense. And yet, according to Jesus, such vague belief was wholly inadequate. Now, you read on and it's clear that they neither understood the enormity of their need nor the staggering magnitude of Jesus' claims. To those who believed well Jesus goes on to deliver a blistering and uncompromising verdict unless you hold to my teaching verse 31 well Jesus will go on to say that you are enslaved self-deceived dying which doesn't really seem the best way of winning friends and influencing people does it but then if you actually read what Jesus said It's invariably a million miles away from the kind of religious caricatures that are so persistent. That was certainly the experience of the influential 20th century writer G.K. Chesterton. I was reading his book Orthodoxy recently. And he says this. Instead of looking at books and pictures about the New Testament, I looked at the New Testament. And there I found an account, not in the least of a person with his hair parted in the middle, of his hands clasped in appeal, but of an extraordinary individual with lips of thunder and acts of lurid decision, flinging down tables, casting out devils, passing with the wild secrecy of the wind from mountain isolation to a sort of dreadful demagogy, 
A being who often acted like an angry God and always like a God. He believed that Jesus was an historical figure, a good person, a great teacher, a spiritual guide is not enough. For it simply does not fit with Jesus' own self-understanding and the extraordinary nature of his claims. So why is it then that so many people settle for such an inadequate assessment of this extraordinary man? Well, as we briefly survey this exchange that we've got printed out here, there seem to me to be two fundamental reasons. The first is this, that we don't take belief in Jesus seriously when we don't understand the enormity of our need. We don't take Jesus seriously when we don't understand the enormity of our need. Now, as some of you will know, when I'm not doing this sort of thing, I occasionally dabble as a dentist. And some years ago, a chap came to see me for a checkup. Now, he wasn't experiencing any problems, and he was expecting a clean bill of health and a swift discharge. Now, sadly, all was not well on his x-rays. Now, in the first instance, he simply refused to believe that there was a problem. So I showed him the decay on his x-rays, decay that was visible to an untrained eye from 20 yards. But even then, he was struggling to believe that there was a problem. After all, he, he, he didn't feel that there was anything wrong. Perhaps I was mistaken. Perhaps he suggested that the x-rays I had in front of me were, in fact, somebody else's x-rays and not him. You see, when you don't think there's a problem, you're not interested in the solution. So it is with Jesus. When we don't see the enormity of our need, we don't take belief in Jesus seriously. So, verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, Jesus offers people freedom, the assumption being that without him we are somehow slaves. And not surprisingly, Jesus' hearers don't share his assessment, verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? You can almost hear the incredulity in their words, can't you? They simply don't buy Jesus' assessment of their needs. How could they possibly need freeing? But you know, whether it's the presumption of historic religion as it is here, or contemporary rationalism as it is for so many people today, Jesus identifies a universal human need that is real, whether we acknowledge it or not. Now, clearly Jesus is not speaking here of physical slavery, but some sort of spiritual slavery, as indeed Jesus first here has understood him to say. And so Jesus, if you like, pulls out the x-ray and spells out the problem, verse 34. I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus says that people are slaves to sin. That we do what we want, but what we want is to persistently defy the God who made us. We are, if you like, more interested in self-rule than divine rule. We will always prefer to do it my way. And so we are trapped in a, a desperate servitude to our own moral failure. 
And as you read on in the Gospels, Jesus exposes the enormity of the problem. For it is not what we say that demonstrates our slavery. It is rather what we do. So we can pay lip service to religion or morality, but defy the very one in whom true religion is found and true goodness is defined. Verse 37, Jesus says, I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. See, we don't take belief in Jesus seriously when we don't see the enormity of our need. I do think it's curious that we think that all is well when so much of the evidence, corporate and individual, is so damning. Now, whatever technological progress we may have seen throughout history, there is little evidence that we are fundamentally better people. As the writer Philip Samson puts it, an age that has seen more than 80 million people killed in wars, that has polluted its environment, that starves two-thirds of its population in order to make the remainder obese, and is daily destroying numerous species of plants and animals, seems less the embodiment of progress than it once did. And even on a personal level, I wonder which of us has not wondered at our seeming incapacity to live up to our own standards, never le- never, still less the standards of the God who is truly there. Of course, most of the time, most of us just get on with the business of life, ignoring or suppressing the truth, because so often self-deceit is so much more comforting. But the reality of the problem doesn't go away just because we deny it, does it? It's why if you actually read Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, it's why it is so often such a very uncomfortable experience. Why? Well, because his words are like x-rays that expose the hidden, unacknowledged problem of the human soul. That without Jesus, you and I are slaves. Slaves to sin, slaves to our own moral rebellion. Actively hostile or passively indifferent, we don't want God to have any real say in our lives. Whatever vague claims we might make about our own beliefs, even our beliefs about Jesus, we will never take belief in Jesus seriously unless we recognize the enormity of our need. Jesus says, if you hold to my, disciple, hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, there is, I think, a second reason why we don't take belief in Jesus seriously, and it's this. We don't take belief in Jesus seriously when we fail to understand who Jesus really is. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, Jesus' listeners are finding his straight-talking assessment of them a little bit uncomfortable. They respond, as I guess most of us tend to in such circumstances, with a mixture of self-justification and self-rationalization. And so Jesus, meek and mild, lobs another theological hand grenade into the discussion to focus people's mind, verse 46. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? It is interesting, isn't it? In contrast to many people today, many in the first century, many first century eyewitnesses of Jesus didn't consider Jesus to be a good person at all. In fact, they considered him to be a very bad person. 
To the moral and respectable, Jesus was clearly a sinner. Now, why else would he hang out with so many disreputable members of society? But it's one thing to accuse Jesus of sin. It's quite another to prove it. And so Jesus asks the question. The extraordinary question. The question that only one man in history could ever ask with honesty and integrity, verse 46. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Can you ever imagine asking that question? I certainly can't. Evidence of guilt will be stacking up even as the question was leaving my lips. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? See, Jesus doesn't just claim to be a good person. He claims to be a perfect person, a a sinless person. And so they and we ought to listen to him. End of verse 46. If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. At which point, theological debate degenerates into personal abuse. Appalled by the audacity and the arrogance of Jesus' claims, Jesus' listeners resort to racial slurs and charges of demonically induced insanity, verse 48. Aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? And again, you kind of think that at this point, Jesus would realize that he'd rather overstepped the mark. Maybe beginning to feel the heat of an increasingly hostile crowd, he would recast his claims in more moderate and more palatable terms. Which, of course, is exactly what Jesus doesn't do. His defense, if you like, is offense, piling extraordinary claim upon extraordinary claim. You see, he says, verse 50, that his life has nothing to do with self-promotion, but divine vindication. That God the Father will demonstrate the reality of his extraordinary claims, and since he is the judge, it is his verdict that really matters and no one else's. Now, there is, of course, in Jesus' words, an implicit warning, isn't there? That the world will one day be held accountable to the one who is the judge. And although Jesus' warning is somewhat veiled, it's there nevertheless. It may seem to us that God is in the dock now and that we are sitting in judgment on him. But one day the roles will be reversed. In the end, everyone will see that Jesus' identity is not about personal opinion, but eternal decree. And yet, you know, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it, but to bring life. Verse 51, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. See, again, it's an offer that exposes the enormity of our need. We're not only enslaved to our own moral failure without Jesus, we are also facing death. Yes, physical death, but more than that. The death of being separated from God forever. And again, not surprisingly, it's an assessment that sticks in the throats of Jesus. Here is verse 52. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. 
Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Now that really is the question, isn't it? Who was this extraordinary man? For it is the apparently breathtaking arrogance of Jesus' claims that leaves his listeners so utterly indignant. And yet if they imagine that they had misheard him, Jesus makes his claims increasingly explicit. You see, according to Jesus, it is not that he is merely greater than Abraham, the great figure that towers over the Old Testament. It's not merely that Jesus is greater than Abraham, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus claims that all of history was moving inexorably forward to one point, to one life, to Jesus' death and resurrection, so that slaves could be freed and the dying could be given life. So for hundreds of years before Jesus came, Old Testament believers looked forward to the day of the Lord. And Jesus, without a hint of embarrassment or arrogance, says that that day has arrived. For the Lord's day is, as he puts it in verse 56, my day. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And you see, Jesus takes the very name of God himself from the Old Testament and uses it of himself. He is nothing less than the great I am, God himself in human history. So real that he has left his footprint in the sands of Palestine. So real his impact on the pages of history is unrivaled. So real he has changed the lives of millions of people forever. I was talking just last week with one of my sons about Jesus' extraordinary claims in the gospel and he made an interesting comment to me. He said, Daddy, that's all a bit showing off, isn't it? It's like me telling everyone at school that I'm a better footballer than David Beckham. Now, of course, as an analogy, it's fairly weak, but it makes the point, doesn't it? Normal people do not go around saying the kind of things that Jesus said. They just don't. Unless Jesus' claims are true, this is showing off on a colossal scale. You know, whatever vague claims we might make about our own beliefs, even our beliefs about Jesus, we will never really take seriously Jesus unless we recognize the enormity of our need or the sheer magnitude of Jesus' claims. God in human history offering freedom to slaves and life to the dying. Let me say as I finish that if you really understand what Jesus is saying and claiming here, it will lead to one of either two responses. Either a growing hostility or a broken humility. The Bible seems to repeatedly show that there is no middle ground. So, verse 59, Jesus makes these extraordinary claims and some picked up stones to stone Jesus. And others? Well, then and now, and down through the last 2,000 years, there were others who recognized the enormity of their need and the sufficiency of Jesus to meet that need. Slaves who found freedom. 
the dying who discovered life through the death and resurrection of the greatest man who ever lived. It's hardly flattering to be told that you are a slave to sin and dying. But you know, if Jesus' diagnosis is true, you would be a fool to ignore him, wouldn't you? And if Jesus really was who he claimed to be, then you really do think that he would know what he's talking about, wouldn't you? So let me make two suggestions by, way of a, by, by means of a way forward. One thing that you could do would be to actually read for yourself something of the life of Jesus Christ. Astonishing how many people as an adult have never actually read one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Does somebody who has, not, has made such a profound impact on our world not at least deserve that? I'm going to have some of these, and Dave will have some on the way out. If that would be helpful for you, then do ask, and we'll give you one. And the second thing I want to encourage you to do is to think about coming to the Open to Question course. It starts this Tuesday. It runs for only a few weeks' time. A few Tuesday evenings to get sorted. The most important man who ever lived. It's not very much, is it? John, when he finishes this book, says that these things are written that you might really know who Jesus is. And in knowing that, you might have life in his name. Well, let's just have a moment's quiet, and then David's going to lead us as we pray.